Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us today as we continue our study of God's Word together. Now we're digging into Hebrews chapter 5 today, so I'm glad you could be part of this. And if you haven't been part of our study of Hebrews up till this point, I would encourage you to back up and start at the beginning. We, in our discussion of the text, build on the ideas that we've already covered and look at the progression within the text itself as ideas are explained and expounded upon. That is definitely true in the book of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is establishing uh, several arguments or uh, explanations, if you will, of the contrast of why Christ is superior to several things. And, well, to really grasp that, you're going to need to back up and start at the beginning. Or maybe if you're hitting chapter five and you've been part of this, but just catching it week by week and you need a refresher for where we are, I encourage you go back and re-listen to some of those podcasts. Hopefully you will find them edifying and um, beneficial to you. All right, well, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings that you have given us. Father, we thank you for your word, that we can study it, that we can hear your voice speaking to us through your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us and to call us to obedience through these texts. Now, Father, as we study them, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is sensitive to the promptings of your spirit, that we might grow in our obedience to you and in doing such that we might reflect more and more the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus the Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our high priest in your presence. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, chapter 5 of Hebrews is continuing to build this discussion. We've talked about how Jesus, or the author of Hebrews, explained how Jesus is higher than the angels, seeing the angels as those that delivered the law Uh, the messengers of God that delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if Christ is superior to the angels, then he's superior to the law they delivered. Uh, We get into Moses uh, long around chapter three, where we're seeing how Christ is compared to Moses and Christ is greater than Moses and his role in all this. Then we get into chapter four and there's some warnings, but chapter four ends out with talking about the idea of Christ as our high priest. And what the author is doing is setting up this comparison where Christ has been higher than the law, been higher than the prophet Moses, and now he is higher than that that priestly sacrificial system, or he is, is superior to it. And chapter 5 begins to really explain some of this, and we get introduced to an Old Testament character that, well, in the rest of Scripture doesn't get just a whole lot of mileage, a fellow by the name of Melchizedek. Now, whether you've heard of Melchizedek or not, I encourage you to just take a moment and say that name a few times, because it's just kind of a fun name to say. It rolls off the tongue. 
I, I can honestly say I've never met anyone named Melchizedek, but um, hey, there it is. It's a good biblical name, solid biblical name. So maybe if you're considering a baby name right now, you know, there's an option for you. Uh, just kidding. Unless you love the name and want to use it, then that would be a um, different. Good luck finding personalized stuff. Okay. Chapter five. Again, it begins this discussion of Christ as high priest. Now we're really going to get into Melchizedek and all the stuff related to him as we get to chapter seven. That's where the discussion really culminates. But here it's introduced a little more fully. It says every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and he offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as theirs. Okay, so he's laid out the first requirements uh, that describe the character of a high priest throughout the Jewish history at this point, uh, following the, the law, the Levitical law, the high priest is a man, a descendant of Aaron, but uh, is a man and is chosen to represent the people. Now he's not chosen by the people. He's chosen by God to represent the people in their dealings with God. It was the high priest. He was the only one who could, on the Day of Atonement, he was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies and offer that yearly sacrifice, that sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. He was the one that carried that into that, that representative presence of God before the ark. But he's a man. He's chosen to represent the people by God in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God. He offers sacrifices for their sins. And he's able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. In fact, not just subject to the same weaknesses. As a human, he has succumbed to some of the same weaknesses. So verse 3, that is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. You see, he's an imperfect high priest. Because although he's chosen by God, and although he's the one that represents the people in the presence of God, he's making sacrifices that are inadequate. You go, but how is that inadequate? He did them every year and they covered the sins of the people. Actually, no, they didn't. They pointed towards the sacrifice that God promised to provide that would be adequate for atoning for all the sins of the people. They were a placeholder, and they had to be repeated year after year. So they really weren't adequate. But they pointed towards what would be the adequate sacrifice. Not only that, he was a high priest that had to go through the ritual of atoning for his own sins before he could represent the people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's keep going. Verse four, 
It says, and no one can become high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, and here's a couple quotes from Psalms, you are my son. Today I have become your father. We've seen that quote before, but he goes on with another quote. That one is from, where is that? Psalm chapter two. Now we're going to jump to Psalm 110 verse four says, and in another passage, God says to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. Well, he's put quite a bit out there, hasn't he? So we've pointed out high priest, man, high priest chosen by God. The human high priest makes offerings on a yearly basis for the sins of the people, can relate to the sins of the people because he himself is a sinner and has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. No one becomes a high priest by their own choosing. They are chosen by God. Is it an honor? It is an honor bestowed on them by God. Christ was not presumptuous about becoming high priest. He did not honor himself by assuming he would become high priest. No, he was chosen by God. And you say, when did God choose him? And that's why you've got these scripture passages from back in Psalms. Before the incarnation, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And in another passage, he said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And like I say, we'll explain Melchizedek in much greater detail as we get over to chapter 7. But here, just hold that as a reference. Melchizedek was seen as a a kingly priest, a king and priest of Salem, uh, who received an offering from Abraham. This is back before Moses. This is back before any of that. And Abraham acknowledged him as a high priest of God, and he was a king and a priest. So for God to say in Psalm, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Christ is chosen and declared by God to be a high priest and king, by the way. But um, there's, there's a lot there. And we need to excuse me. And we need to acknowledge that again. He is setting up this whole discussion. Christ is higher than the law, higher than supreme, superior to Moses, superior to the whole priestly sacrificial system. Doesn't mean those things are negated. It means he is the fulfillment of each of those things. He is the embodiment of the law of the expression of the character and nature of God. He is not just a prophet. He is the presence of God in the flesh. He is not just a priest. He is the ultimate high priest on our behalf in the presence of God. 
Now, as we pick up in verse 7, he, the author begins to explain what Jesus did and how he fit that role. It says in verse 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Now, you may go, well, when did that take place? I don't remember that. The Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. What am I saying? The Garden of Gethsemane, as he was praying there before his arrest, praying for his disciples, praying for the world, those that would come to know him, praying for his own situation. Lord, if there be any way this cup could pass from me, nevertheless, thy will be done. He was crying out to God, the whole sweat drops of, of blood. I mean, talks that indicates the kind of of stress, the kind of agony that he was experiencing, the turmoil he was in. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. What do you mean he learned obedience? Well, he had the opportunity to practice obedience. He could have given in at any point along the way. When Satan, back in Matthew chapter 4, took him to the highest point of the temple and said, look, if you'll just jump off, you know, Scripture says the angels will catch you. You're not going to hit your foot on the rocks down there. To do so would be to make himself obvious to the world as the Messiah. And yet in doing that, he would not be obedient to God any longer because that was not what God had called him to. Satan offered him various opportunities to take a shortcut, to divert around the more unpleasant parts of God's plan, gave him opportunity to avoid the cross. And yet the cross was the plan, and Jesus remained obedient. So it was learned obedience from the things he suffered. He endured, and that manifested his obedience. In this way, God qualified him, this is verse 9, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. Not high priest that needs to make sacrifice for his own sins, qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So now we have a high priest who is human. He is God in the flesh. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. He is chosen by God. You are my son today. I have become your father. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek all back from Psalm. So he's chosen by God. He knows our weakness because he himself was tempted. Scripture says in every way as is common to man, but he did not give in to any of that temptation. So he knows our struggle. And he is able to make being qualified as a perfect high priest, a high priest that does not have his own sins to atone for, 
is able to atone on behalf of the rest of us for God. It says, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And God delight, or designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That gives us a glimpse into Christ as high priest. The Son of God is now the perfect high priest for all of humanity. No longer that imperfect high priest in an imperfect sacrificial system, but the perfect high priest in a perfect sacrificial system. Now, he shifts gears at this point in the chapter. In verse 11, he begins to talk more about our spiritual growth and maturity. And again, he's writing this to Christians that have a Hebraic background and the book is written as a warning to them and a calling back to a grounded Christian faith because they were, some of them were turning back to the Jewish faith and placing their hope in these flawed systems and these inadequate sacrifices. And he's explaining to them through all of this, how, look, Christ is superior to all of that. So cling to Christ, not these other things. And so 11 through the end of the chapter, fall back into that discussion. We're going to come back and discuss Christ being superior to the sacrificial system and as a perfect high priest later on in six and then on in the seven. But let's round out chapter six at this point. So verse 11 begins this call to grow spiritually. And he doesn't mince his words here. He's pretty blunt, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Sometimes we need to hear the truth, and we need to hear it bluntly. Not rudely, but bluntly, because we like to hem and haw. And in my experience, humans are incredibly gifted at rationalizing their own sin and their own disobedience to God. Hear what the author of Hebrews says, starting in 11. He says, there is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. In other words, you, you don't get it and you don't seem to pay any attention to it, so you can get it. Verse 12, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food, or actually literally translated there, be eat meat. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So he's calling him out. He's going, look, you are gladly living as spiritual infants. You are being dull. You're not being sharp. You're being dull. Why? Because you don't seem to listen. You don't get it. I have met people in my life and in my ministry experience that can tell me how they came to Jesus 
70 years ago. And the truth is, in that 70 years, some of them haven't grown. They're still as much spiritual infants as they were 70 years ago. I have met others that have been believers for 10, 15 years and have grown so much into mature believers. It's not a matter of chronology. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of listening to the Word of God, of being trained up in the Word of God, in developing discernment. The reality is, if you've been a believer in Christ and following Him for an extended time, then it is time you ought to be teaching others. You ought to be, well, let me remind you of the command that Jesus left with His disciples that applies to all His followers as he was about to ascend into heaven. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. And I say unto you, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, even unto the end of the age. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. Now, sorry if I want to look King James on here, maybe new King James there, but that's how I memorized it. So, what is the job of a believer, a follower of Christ? Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all I have commanded. If you are a follower of Christ, if you know Christ and you have been growing in your faith, or let's say if you have been uh, in the faith for a period of time, an extended period of time, not a fresh believer, not a, a fresh just converted, but it's been a few years, then it's time to step up. And if you haven't reached that maturity level, then it is time to work on your maturity level. The author of Hebrews is calling out these folks going, look, the problem here is you haven't grown in your faith. And how do we grow in our faith? By knowledge of the word and obedience to Christ. By the doing of the word. Remember our study of James. Our faith is about faith in Christ and then living out that faith in action. It is believing and doing. You can't just do and you can't just believe. If you believe, it leads to the doing. Now, if you're an infant in faith and only living on milk, then you haven't gotten to that point. But the reason you haven't gotten to that point is you. I know, that's harsh. But hear this from a pastor's heart. It is not anyone else's fault that you have not grown in your faith. It's not that your church didn't preach good enough sermons, or your pastor didn't preach good enough sermons, especially if you're part of my congregation. That's definitely not the problem. That That's a joke. Um... It's not that your Sunday school teachers didn't challenge you. It's not, no. The problem is closer to home than that. Look in the mirror. Are you investing in God's word? 
Do you, I know this sounds insanely simple, do you read the Bible? One of the greatest problems among modern Christians is biblical illiteracy. They don't know what the Bible says. They think they know what the Bible says, but they don't bother to read it to actually know. They just hear people talking about it, even preachers talking about it, going, well, this is what Scripture says. Don't take our word for it. Read the thing. God provided it for you. Make use of it. And then live in obedience. Again, let me read this passage. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. We see examples of this in Scripture. The disciples traveled with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They were with him constantly. They went where he went. They heard everything he had to say, and he invested in them to teach them, not just as the 12, not just as the larger group, but even down to just three of them that he really poured into. The Apostle Paul, after coming to faith, Paul was well-educated. He was a leader in the Jewish faith. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. At that point, Old Testament scriptures, but he knew them. And yet after his conversion, not just fleeing for his life, but when he fled for his life, he fled and spent basically the next three years studying and growing in his faith in Christ and then returned. We all need time to grow in our faith, but we all need to be growing in our faith. We need to be maturing. And once we reach that point of maturing, we need to invest in others. We need to be teaching others instead of needing someone to teach us again. Doesn't mean we've arrived. I'm still learning from others. But I also have to pour what I have have learned of walking with Christ into others as well. It is a responsibility and it is a gift. And here the author of Hebrews is just calling them out for it. Saying, hey, here's the situation. We've got to pull up short of what we could be teaching you because you just don't get it because you're infants and you're not growing. You should be mature by now, but you're not. This is one of those issues that we have to examine our own hearts, especially in church life, the church that you were involved in, your part in that church. 
evaluate within your own heart. Are you mature and acting as a mature believer in Christ, making disciples, pouring into others? Or are you sitting back like an infant looking for your next feeding? See, mature believers feed others. Immature believers just look for their next feeding. No, I'm not going to sit here and go, well, you're this or you're that. I'm going to challenge you to examine your own heart and see where you fall. If you're an infant in faith, okay, but you've got to be growing. You've got to be maturing. If you're mature in your faith, awesome. Live it to the full. Let these words be encouragement to you and a challenge to you from the author of Hebrews. I look forward to our next study together as we move into the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. But let's round this one out with praying to God. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, and we thank you that you do not just leave us alone. You don't leave us to fend for ourselves. You don't leave us to to remain infants. But you have saved us. You have called us to yourself. You have a purpose and a plan for our lives. You have revealed yourself in your word, and you have called us to obedience to you, that we may grow in our faith, that we may share your love and your light with this world, the message of the gospel, the saving message of the gospel with this world that so desperately needs you. Lord, thank you for including us in your work, for calling us to greater obedience and to maturity in faith. Help us to ever be growing on that path that we may reflect you more and more and bring glory to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.